If you're looking for strong opinions, loosely held and widely shared, you've come to the right place. This is the National Talkie League. National Talkie League. Rumble, young man, rumble. This is the National Talkie League. It is a very special edition. I'll tell you something. Usually, uh, David, in my in my uh, history, my career in the media, uh, whenever you would put budget special, like ahead of a TV show or something like that, that was just an invitation for people to watch a rerun of Friends. But this time, this time, this is going to have people from coast to coast to coast. And I'm not talking about Canada. I'm talking about Russia here tuned into this one because we're doing a budget spectacular on the Alberta budget. Trevor Toome, the, the notable economist, is our guest. Dave, why don't you just why don't you just slap us silly with a theme song? National Talkie League, he's in the room now. National Talkie League, it's Trevor Toom now. National Talkie League, to clear the gloom now. Trevor, do you get the impression that Dave had been working on that theme song since about 3 o'clock Eastern time? That was great. I get that impression every time he thinks the theme song's... <laughs> Hey, welcome back to the podcast, Trevor. It's good to have you here. Yeah, yeah it's great to be here. Were, Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. You were with us, uh, of course, everybody remembers, back on episode, and we had a really good talk back then. Yeah, as riveting a discussion about the budget, we chatted about equalization, if I recall. Yeah, you know, I bet you were going to go over some of that ground again with the shenanigans that are happening in uh, in British Columbia, because I do, I, I have a question slash fantasy that I might want to run past you. <laughs> You're talking about the speculation tax that uh, came out recently with their budget, and we got some details around that today. Yeah, it just sort of seems like, um, for some reason, if if you're a government in British Columbia, you you just kind of draft things as though the rest of the nation doesn't exist, and like you don't have to play ball with the rest of the country. At least that's my take. So I actually grew up in British Columbia. I was there until I was about 22, 23. And it is an interesting province politically. The big split between the coastal folks, uh, those on the island, and then uh, in the interior. Like dramatically different perspectives on the issues. And it makes for some strange politics. We're seeing that right now when it's that razor-thin margin between the NDP and the Greens and the Liberals. And now the Liberals, kind of their base of support is in the interior of the province, kind of the resource area. Yeah, I, the thing that I find so peculiar about it is that it's like it's almost like another micro uh, Canada. Whereas you know, federally, Westerners always gripe that you know the the Parliament, the composition of the Parliament is decided in the Golden Horseshoe. Like how Toronto votes is how the country goes, and that we just kind of feel like the redheaded stepchild. Uh, no offense to stepchildren, but redheads. I was totally trying to offend you. Um, whereas in, in BC, it's the same sort of thing. It's like Vancouver and the island; those they pick. And if you happen to live in Fort St. John, you're not even an afterthought. Kelowna is an afterthought. Yeah, no, that that is definitely the case. I mean, I don't know how the seat counts break down specifically, but if you win Vancouver and if you win Victoria, those two urban centers, then there you go. You've got government. And I mean, you, you would hope that a party would want a broad base of support and some of the messages uh, might play well in, in Kamloops or other cities in the interior. But I mean, there's that that big split, especially now between those that kind of favor resource development and those that um, 
don't favor it as much. So the pipeline issue, the Site C issue, those were huge election issues in BC, and there are huge issues now nationally. We're seeing how that uh, is playing out, not just in Alberta, but everywhere. It's causing a big headache for Trudeau, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's causing a headache for the BC government itself, because it's trying to straddle these positions that aren't really consistent. They want Site C, they want the LNG exports, they want the the big resource developments there, but they they don't want the pipeline. Um, and it, it, it's just because of that coalition. I think they're trying to really keep the Greens on side, but also, um, you know, at the NDP. It's a Labour Party, and so resource development. It's it's a big thing for their members as well. So it's. Uh, it's interesting to watch. I don't, I don't know how it's going to play out. Well, yeah, they're trying to have their Stormy and their Daniels, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The U.S. political references. Uh, well, is that what that was? Because I, <laughs> um, I, 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 I say this, though. Like, it, it's, it's, it's so strange to me that, that you know, I, was, I was having beers on the weekend with some guys from Invermere. And they really get the sense in that town that they're like, you know, a time zone and four mountain ranges away. Like it's like it's a whole other planet and nobody seems to care. So the speculation tax, like they're, they're afraid that that would actually kill that town, like not just, you know, turn it into like uh, give them some economic hardship to deal with, but would actually destroy the entire vibrance of that town. Yeah. And, and for them, for sure. I mean, three hours out of Calgary, great place. We go there a lot just to do little quick vacations in the summertime. And if you're an Albertan with a second home or a summer home in BC, it's probably pretty close to that town. Yeah. We stayed in a bed and breakfast where, in fact, they were from Calgary, and they kind of live there in the summer, host people uh, as they come and go, but then spend the winter out here. And yeah, I don't know. So those details came out today, and a whole bunch of areas were exempt. A um, whole bunch of different types of homes were exempt. So if the property is not worth more than 400000 then it's not going to be subject to the tax. So they've really also changed the discussion there from speculators, you know, foreigners driving up property values uh, to also a tax targeting the 1%. So they use that language right. uh, pretty explicitly today. So that was a change. <laughs> uh, Dave, question for you. Um if if you don't eat yes. breakfast, uh, can you get like can you lobby for a discount at a at a bed and breakfast, or can you have that meal changed? I would say yes. It depends on how hard you argue. Because I'm an, I'm an, I, I fast intermittently, right? I do all of my eating between noon and eight p.m. It's just a, a conscious choice that I've made, and I sort of feel like there's a Supreme Court or at least a at least a human rights tribunal case in the offing here. <laughs> so you could say at a brunch and breakfast bed and brunch. You know what? Why don't I, I would just kind of like to have a nap and an afternoon snack and I'd pay $28 for that. <laughs> I was just wondering whether there'd be a case for, you know, Invermere and Fernie to say, well, maybe we want to be part of Alberta instead, since everyone here is from Alberta and we're going to be economically ruined by the policies of BC. What's, what's that discussion look like? Uh, yeah, that's been around. When you lived in British Columbia, did did you ever hear that? I think that Fort St. John also wanted to sort of redraw the boundaries so that they could uh, be in Alberta at one time. Yeah, you know, I think that the Alberta-BC boundary is funny, right? It's got the one portion that follows the mountains, and that kind of makes sense. If you're going to draw a border, you know, it'll follow some geographic feature, and then another part that's just a straight line up. 
And so, I mean, either we should take the, the northeast to BC or we should just draw that straight line down and kind of expropriate the southeast portion of BC to make Alberta rectangly again, is uh, the slogan that some people are saying. That's a good one. Yeah, I like, I, I get the sense that back in like, uh, well, I guess it would have been what, 1905 when Saskatchewan and, and Alberta joined the mix that whoever, like, we had like Rembrandt drawing Alberta and then we just had like some geometrist carving out Saskatchewan and that's what they came up with yeah yeah I guess we're stuck with it now all right uh well let's talk about the the home fires here so um Trevor the the big reason that we wanted to have you on the podcast was because when we were looking at um uh, you know we were looking at the budget looking at responses to it I I posted your article that you put that you wrote for CBC um and I was kind of like, I found it shocking actually. And I was reading this and I'm like, my God, like Trevor is really upset about this budget. Like he, he's, he's pumped the brakes on outright calling them cowards. And, you know, like I, I feel like that article from the, that you wrote for CBC, um, could have come with like a, a flaming paper bag of dog crap that you would have thrown <laughs> on somebody's doorstep. It was pretty intense. And him. Embedded gift there somewhere in the article. Uh, CBC didn't go for it, though. (laughs) Yeah, so I uh, actually wrote two articles. Uh, One is still not yet sent anywhere because it was by far the more angry one. Uh, I think that'll just be between me and my word processor. But yeah, that that budget was, uh, I think, really odd. And, and let's put aside for a second the issues around around debt uh, and deficit that has really concerned um, a lot of people, or issues around spending levels or tax policy. Put all that aside. Uh, the government was very clear consistently for months prior to the budget that they would lay out a path to balance. They would get uh, a clear and credible plan uh, out. Before Albertans, to balance by 2023-24, the Premier said it in December in all her end-of-year interviews very clearly. The Finance Minister repeated it only two days before the budget, that they're going to lay out a clear five-year plan to balance the books. And then the budget comes out, and it's a three-year plan, a plan to 2021, when the deficit will be $7 billion that year. So they forgot. Uh, to include a number of years that they told us were going to be there. So right away, like what what a shock that was to see. Other things that they primed us to see in the budget were this idea of compassionate cuts, responsible belt tightening. We've heard all that messaging for, again, months prior to the budget. But the spending levels in this budget are, are basically identical to what we saw in budget 2017. If there was belt tightening, or compassionate cuts, then we sure don't see them in the budget. Total public sector compensation is actually planned to be higher now in budget 2018 than was previously planned for the same uh, fiscal year as the budget last year. So uh, that was also very confusing. Why would they be communicating those messages of a plan to balance, compassionate cuts, and then not actually do it? And then third, Getting off the royalty roller coaster. Right? This this comes up all the time. You know the boom bust cycle in Alberta. It certainly exists, but our exposure to low oil prices is a choice because we rely on royalties to fund a lot of government operations. We need about one in every five dollars uh, 
to come from oil and gas in order to balance Alberta's books. And they were very clear, you know, we're going to do a lot to get off the royalty roller coaster, uh, not just before the budget, but in the budget speech itself, that we have done so much to get off the royalty roller coaster. And now, to quote the finance minister, we are less reliant on royalties than we have ever been before. Uh, and not just in the budget speech, but in all the interviews asked to the budget. That's that's just not the case. We are as reliant on royalties as we have ever been. We still need one in every $5 of government revenue to come from royalties, and we still will need that much in the coming years. So on, on all these major uh, issues that Albertans need to kind of tackle and that the government very clearly said they were going to tackle, they didn't. So it was very confusing. And if this is a political strategy, I really can't figure it out. That was exactly what I was going to say is, is does this budget betray a political strategy? And I, I kind of wonder like where the, where the NDP war room is at with what the current landscape in, in the province is. I mean, I've said it repeatedly, you know, that I, I feel like, um, this next election is just about a layup for Jason Kenney. The only thing stopping the UCP is, is a cavalcade of, of bozo eruptions. Um, but I sort of wonder if the NDP isn't playing some defense here and trying to establish a plan that pits them against the Alberta party for opposition or something absurd. Like, I don't really get it either. Yeah. And, and this was a big missed opportunity, I think. I mean, politics, um, it's not like I have a good sense of this, but Kenny has said what his timeline is to balance the books. He wants it by 2022-23, so year three of his mandate was the, the goal that he laid out. Imagine the government came out with this budget that balances in 2022-23 with detail along the way and just a little bit more spending restraint than they have shown in the past. You wouldn't actually need that much to balance at that time frame. And then now they've completely undercut uh, the UCP message, but instead they just completely seed the field. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a little crazy. Thing, thing that that kind of stumps me here too <clears throat> is um, – the, the the conflicting messages between the environment minister and the finance minister about what to do with carbon uh, carbon levy revenue or carbon tax revenue, and I, you know it's it's sort of like I guess if I'm Joe Cece, I would basically just go all the way there. I don't see, I don't see the point of baby steps in politics, right? Like when Harper reduced the GST by by two points, he was trying to do this like really minuscule tax cut that the middle class is going to feel, and you know they're going to have that money at the end of the day. And I was just sort of like, look, it's a bad idea to get rid of a consumption tax, but if you're going to do it, get rid of it, get rid of the whole damn thing. So I thought that Cece should have just stepped up and said, you know what? How could you resist just putting your grubby mitts all over that big pot of money? We're taking it all. We're giving it to nurses that's what we're doing <laughs> yeah and that was that was part of how they're going to get to balance uh, 2023 so we've got the carbon tax right now 30 bucks uh, a ton in a couple years that's going to grow to 40 so january 1 2021 and then it'll grow to 50 in 2022 and that additional revenue they've said is just going to go into shrinking the deficit how big that additional revenue is, though, is not something that we know because mm -hmm. they didn't actually release any details uh, past 
2020-2021. So I've tried to work it out. So just to give you a sense of like what the potential range is, by 2022-23 or so, that's somewhere... Uh, between 900 million and a little over 2 billion. It really depends on what they mean by carbon tax revenue, because we have two carbon taxes in Alberta, which isn't broadly known. But they didn't release any details, and that's a pretty big range right there. But either one, even that lower bound there, is bigger than the projected surplus that year. So they need that carbon tax revenue to go into shrinking the deficit and not be spent, um, which I think is a, you know, fine. Uh, that's a defensible policy position, but because they didn't lay out any details around it, it's very hard to actually have a conversation around the pros and cons of that. Hmm. I sort of wonder too, it, it, like are all the, are all the home run messaging and stuff like that, that, that kind of brought the last election home for the NDP talking about things like, you know, uh, a living wage or, um, I guess even this, this carbon tax is another really good example of something that they said that they would implement that seemed like a pretty popular choice. Do you, do you get the sense, Trevor, that, um, that, that, that any of the negative economic ramifications that some of us were projecting are kind of coming home to roost and that Albertans are kind of feeling it or do you, or do you think that's not the case at all? It's always hard to disentangle the effect of um, policy changes from broader economic conditions, right? We went through a a big recession. The dramatic decline in oil prices was really a body blow to the province's economy, and now we're going through a recovery. And these movements are going to be, they are going to swamp any effect that changes in, in taxes would have had on on employment or incomes, the minimum wage, whatever effect it has on employment or jobs for young people that's swamped by the oil price movement. And so it's, it's going to be really hard to tell, and it's hard for any of us to tell what's due to policy and what's due to the recession or the recovery. And we see that in politics too, where the mm-hmm. opposition blames every bad piece of economic news on the government, on government policy, and the government claims credit for every piece of good economic news, even though it's probably just oil prices fell, so we had a recession, and now we're having a recovery, and that's 90% of the story right there. Um, yeah. I don't know. So and the, the only other thing, politics-wise, that I, that I wonder, too, is like, you know, the debt is a big story in Ontario, but it has been for a long, long time. Um, and Kathleen Wynne has still been able to win, you know, governments and uh, the liberals for that matter still have been able to win governments. And then we've got the prime minister who basically campaigned on what a lot of us would call irresponsible spending. We're going to $10 billion deficits on what we don't know. And so it's, it just sort of seems to me like, like if I'm the NDP in this province, there's no point in trying to structure campaign messaging around balancing the budget when my constituents clearly don't care about that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, Ontario will be an interesting one to watch. I mean, it does seem to be catching up to the government there. They're the least popular government and the least popular premier of any province, for sure. And now we have Doug Ford, who's got a a real shot at at winning there. And I think a big part of the concern, just based on the messaging that he brings out, is about jobs, employment. It's about debt and size of government. And you you might be able to win an election or two before debt concerns catch up with you, but at some point they will. And But it's kind of night and day between Alberta and Ontario. They've got a debt level that is almost 40% of their economy. Uh, Ours right now is only about 6.5%. 
and it'll grow uh, for sure. But when we balance by the early of the ne- early next decade, we'll have debt of about thirteen hmm. percent of GDP. So we'll still have the lowest level of debt relative to the economy of any province, and so that might suggest that uh, the current government is hoping that the relatively low debt level. Um, you know, is not a big concern for people, but it's also been a big change. I mean, only 10 years ago, we never had uh, significant amounts of debt. We had substantial assets that were far bigger than the debt. We had assets that were on the order of 15% of GDP. So this is a a big swing from a net asset position where we own more than we owe uh, to now where we owe more than we own. And that change is so dramatic that it might have a much bigger political effect here. Whereas in Ontario, you're kind of boiling the frog where debt Mm -hmm. levels are just kind of growing and growing and growing. But they they never made in in one 10-year period as dramatic a change as what Alberta saw. Even during the financial crisis, they increased by less than what we've increased by. Hmm. So... I'm going to ask a question here. This might be an economics 101 question, but as I understand it, uh, if you're in a if you're in a deficit or if you're in a, a recession, there's a couple of choices, right? You can use is it they call it austerity, which is uh, lower your spending, right? Lower your cut whatever you're spending and and try to make more money that way. And then I'm not sure what they call the other side of the coin, which is which is what the sort of the NDP seem to be doing right now, which is spend your way out. Yeah, I'm is not that, sure what they call the other side of the accurate? coin there either. So I, I'm not a big fan of the word it's, austerity, and I think people use it far too often. Uh, to me, when I hear the word austerity, I think Greece. I think sudden, dramatic shifts in the way everything works, kind of across the board, where spending is just slashed um, by you know double digit percents uh, of the budget here we don't we don't need anywhere close to that comparisons to ralph klein as well are completely uh off base we just need growth rates that are less than what we have right now and you could balance by uh Kenny's timeline, 2022 or so, and grow program spending by one, one and a half percent per year between now and then. Uh, so it, spending restraint, you know, just gradual reductions in the pace of growth uh, you know, don't require dramatic policy changes. They require kind of persistent, you know, diligent um, you know, some clever explorations of the budget, make sure things are done efficiently, in particular in health, maybe go pretty hard on doctors and physician compensation, for example. That's 10% of the budget right there alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think you could do it. You could grow spending at a lower rate, and I think the NDP could do it too. It wouldn't require any kind of big changes about what the government does or how it does it. Awesome. So one thing I hear on on Reddit a lot is people are like, you know what? It's fine that we're spending all this money because of the uh, the ratio to the GDP. You talk about that. Sure. Is, so, that, is that true? False? So, I mean, whether uh, we want to spend money in in one area or another, I, I think ought to just be about that program. If you need the bridge. Uh, and it's got benefits that outweigh the costs. All right, let's build the bridge. If you need a cancer center, build the cancer center. The ring road. I mean, I don't actually know if 
anything about the ring road, but if we need it, then, then, then build it. If you want to have, you know, daycare service, then we can debate the pros and cons of, you know, provincial funding for daycare and so on and so on. Um, that's how we should be deciding on our spending decisions. And if we think that something is worth having, then we ought to pay for it with, uh, with tax revenue. I think the debt to GDP ratio, uh, is an appropriate thing to look at to understand whether or not the debt level is sustainable, kind of just in a technical sense. That doesn't mean advisable. It just means, can we manage to hold a level of debt and service it without creditors feeling like there's a risk of default or any kind of drastic change in the future? So with our debt to GDP ratio being less than every other province and peaking at about 13%, that, that's a very manageable level just in that technical sense. So there's no concern about Alberta as, um, I guess, a, a credit risk to people who are going to be loaning it money. But if we go back to the early 90s, remember Saskatchewan, 1993, I think it was, when their debt level was about one-third of the economy. So I think it peaked around... 33% or so, if I'm remembering correctly, they were close to defaulting and they needed the feds to help them out. Uh, or Newfoundland today, they have a debt level almost 50% of GDP and they need to make serious, dramatic decisions, not just on the revenue side, but the spending side as well. So they increased their sales tax by two points uh, a budget or two back. They introduced uh, a huge gas tax, 16 and a half cents, like in one go huge changes. So when your debt levels are that high and you are reaching the point where creditors are beginning to wonder whether you could service that debt in the future, then that calls for kind of drastic action today. So Alberta is nowhere near that level. So we, ha we have the luxury of still discussing um, the appropriate role and scope of government. We don't need to enact changes forced upon us from the outside, if you will. I don't know. If, yeah. So what happens, what would happen in a case like that? So Newfoundland's at 50% and creditors start freaking out. What's, what's the answer? Is the, the government, the federal government have to step in and loan the money? Yeah. Or? And, and that is absolutely what would happen. And that is absolutely what everyone expects would happen. So Newfoundland can still borrow at interest rates that are pretty close to what we can borrow at. And all, all the right. provinces can borrow at pretty much the same rate because everyone understands that the federal government is there as a backstop. Um, but what could happen is let's look back to Alberta in the mid-1930s. The only province to ever actually default uh, oh, was yeah. Alberta. This is the and, farmers did it too, wasn't it? <laughs> that's right. It was the, yeah, the, the UFA. UFA or it, it's kind of what led to the, the social credit taking power mm -hmm. as well. So we, we defaulted on debt then, and that's just when you basically tell the creditors that the next payment, well, you're not going to get it. Sorry. And there's not much they can do about that. And yeah, it took some time, but that was, that was worked out. Uh, in Saskatchewan, there, the concern was uh, that they wouldn't be able to make uh, those payments, um, and the feds were ready to step in. The Bank of Canada was ready to step in, and they were drawing up contingency plans to like, directly help the Saskatchewan government. They came out in the end with some indirect ways to uh, funnel some money to Saskatchewan, but you can imagine a situation where a government kind of hits a wall. 
uh, to borrow, a government sells an IOU. It, you know, it, it sells a contract that says, I promise to pay you, you know, the following amounts for the next however many years. And people are willing to pay for those because these are promises that have, uh, you know, backing, they have credibility. But if people, Sorry, is that is that a, that's a, a bond, bond that's or right. is that like a promissory that's note? A oh, it's a bond. Okay. And if people are concerned about your ability to make those payments that you promised, well, no one's going to bid on that bond. And so then you wouldn't be able to borrow any money. And then you, you've actually run out of physical cash. And so you wouldn't be able to pay your suppliers or you wouldn't be able to pay your workers or you wouldn't be able to pay some of the benefits that you pay out to households and, and whatnot. So in the event that you can't sell a bond, then that forces you into a situation where you're not just defaulting on the, on the debt, but you're defaulting on some of your promises to, um, your employees uh, or beneficiaries of government programs, things like that. But yeah, the feds would come in and they would um, backstop those obligations. Absolutely. Would they would they buy the bonds in that case, or were they just sort of in flux? Oh, so there's no, there's no, lots Trevor, of ways. I can handle this one, Trevor. No, what happens is they they attach chainsaws to the front of their trucks, and then everybody wears goalie masks. The entire landscape becomes a desert, and, and Charlie's Theron has one arm. <laughs> Quick to the mountain with all the water in it. <laughs> that's not it, is it? That's not what happens. No. It's not nearly well, that. Let's exciting. hope that's not what happens. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a little bit, a little bit more boring than that. A couple of people type into a computer, <laughs> oh, trans- <laughs> transfer this money to that government. But no, I, I'm sure it would um, just be that the feds loan uh, the province some money. It, it, however, that's structured, kind of like the auto bailout. Right, where right. we just provide an influx of cash, and we'll sort it out later. Uh, yeah, the auto bailout. The irony of of the economist prime minister who wanted nothing to do with this program, <laughs> purchasing shares in one of the big three on his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, the U.S. was going to do it, and so uh, there was a strong case for Canada to go along, uh, so as to maintain a kind of unified industry across the border and i don't know i I personally wasn't a fan of uh of that at the time no because it 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 prevented a correction exactly like it it prevented us from getting to where we sort of need to be and i I look at the that landscape now and what you know what elon musk has done with it and how that the um sort of the trajectory of the automobile has has really shifted i mean we, we see uber killing people with their cars now <laughs> we've got uh you know one of those uh, an electric car is in space we didn't think that was going to happen 10 that years was ago amazing. yeah and then and then you've got virtually every um uh you know auto manufacturer meaningful auto manufacturer in the world trying to create an electric or some sort of a uh you know a non uh combustible uh engine automobile as like a point of pride as like a statement right a status symbol so uh i just sort of feel like we would have gotten there a lot sooner if the governments hadn't backstopped the industry and made way for the innovators yeah i mean there's a little bit of creative destruction going on in every industry you know with the old and with the new and these kind of supports do slow down that adjustment um, you know, that being said, it, it displaces thousands of workers. And I think that governments have a role to play in, in supporting those workers, helping retraining, um, direct income supports. I'm not sure exactly how to structure it, but support for workers doesn't mean bailing out an entire company. Right. 
So, I mean, and my, my knock on that is that support for workers often means clearing impediments for, for businesses, right? And I think that, that one of the biggest problems that Canada faces right now is that there are just far too many impediments to do, to investing in businesses in this country. I mean, if you were a Jeff Bezos type, this is just not an attractive landscape to be making, you know, uh, nine and 10 figure investments in anything because of the tax events that you'll trigger mm-hmm. or how your money is perceived on the way in. Yeah. I, I, that's a longer run issue. I'm not going to take away from what uh, you said. I completely agree. But in, in that crisis situation where you have a situation where a bunch of facilities might have just closed and thousands of workers overnight are out, um, saying, oh, some investment down the line will take care of things in a couple of years. Um, so, so yeah, I, I agree. Longer run, you want to make the economy resilient to these shocks by ensuring that there is easy investment flows in and out of the economy. Uh, with the caveat, I guess, Alberta right now, uh, what are we seeing? So the recovery is taking place, but who's kind of being left out is a very clear group of young men with low levels of education who could make boatloads of money in oil and gas and they dropped out of high school that i'm not sure their situation has helped uh, if there's increased investment in other sectors they kind of need basic skills you know, retraining things where mm-hmm. um government has a role so I always sort of, you know, when I think about this conversation, try to think about it in a way that like, what is a, what is one thing that might be like a major step, um, that would have a nearly immediate impact on, on that sort of landscape. So, you know, specifically talking about investment in, um, new companies and new organizations. Um, I look at the capital gains tax as being something where the, the federal government could just slash it, make a really dramatic change to that one policy and maybe, you know, buttress the, that, that revenue on uh, in another part, like a, a one or two point increase in the GST, for example, right? Just to make up the revenue shortfall. And then that could really kind of burst a dam of, of cash that's being held back. What say you, wiser one than I? I think there are lots of ways to increase the return on investment. So taxes right now do discourage investment because they tax the returns from that investment. Uh, So one way would be to cut the tax rates on those investment returns, either, as you say, the capital gains or corporate income taxes. Uh, Another way that doesn't involve changing those rates is to allow for immediate expensing of investment. Mm-hmm. So you uh, sink a billion dollars into a facility now, you gradually expense that investment over time. If you were to allow companies to write that off immediately, that is effectively like a 0% corporate income tax uh, on mm-hmm. those incremental investment dollars. So it allows you to cut taxes just on new investment in a very targeted way. And we see that in some sectors. Governments do this all the time, these accelerated depreciation allowances that pop up every now and then. So when it's just done to this sector or that, then it's kind of a subsidy. But if you do it across the board, everyone is able to access these accelerated uh, depreciation allowances, then that would uh, increase investment for sure. And I think there's a lot of people arguing for that kind of reform to the corporate income tax system. I mean, it's harder to communicate, I guess. Um, 
Yeah. Well, it, and it's yeah, but I mean, at the same time, when you do come out and you say, "Look, this industry is in, is embattled and it needs help," and so we're putting in this accelerated, you know, blah blah blah, then it kind of colors in some of the numbers for people. Like they can see that oil and gas and, you know, and this kind of goes hand in glove with this notion that we should be upgrading our product here at home so that you can accelerate the depreciation on investment in a refinery. And then people can go, ah, aha, but somebody like you, Trevor is going to come along and go, you know, that policy would work in like restaurants too, or in, you know, hockey arenas, community hockey rinks. So why not just have it across the board? Like why it's, it's weird when you're brought in the argument, it seems to like get lost in translation. Yeah. and, And who knows, what uh, the valuable investment opportunities are. That's what entrepreneurs are for, and it shouldn't be for governments to try and think of which sectors ought to get preferential tax treatment. Uh, You kind of just level the playing field across all the sectors. Entrepreneurs will sniff out the opportunities that are there and see what happens. And it's harder for politicians, I guess, because you'd never be able to stand in front of the facility and claim that it was your policy that did it. Whereas if you have a targeted uh, tax credit for investment in this particular area for video games, then you bet there's going to be a photo op <laughs> when that video game facility opens up. Yeah. Guys, it, it just occurred to me that entrepreneurs are like the sort of artists of the city, right? So when artists find a new area where there's not much growth or whatever, they go in there, they paint up the place, they make it worth a lot of money and everybody wants to go live there. Then they can't afford to live there. So they move on. So the entrepreneurs are kind of doing that. They're going, Oh, look, there's some opportunity there. So they go into that and then everything starts blowing up in that segment. So then they have to go find another one. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, in my take on it, um, is that entrepreneurs will move in and they'll they'll exploit an opportunity and then if, no if they do if they're right if they're correct then they'll create something that's quite valuable they'll they'll create an entity that's quite valuable I think the the problem that we've had in in Alberta and, and Canada more broadly is that um, jurisdictions have been really late to see the value on that and then they get wooed away from a jurisdiction that sees it quite quickly so the brain drain in entrepreneurial communities particularly in high tech to the Silicon Valley is real because what happens is you got three guys that you know start a little company that does 10 million dollars in the first year then some guy like peter Thiel in the u.s says um i could i could sponsor you guys to move down to san francisco we'll put you in this penthouse we'll hire 10 other people you'll do nothing but this for the next three years and we're going to sell it for nine figures and so and like you just don't have the capacity to have that conversation or the the risk-taking climate outside of oil and gas in this province and the the government is is barely stepping up to recognize that um it's worth investing in anything based on its results as opposed to the the you know the the niche that it fits into like we're a golf company right my my startup is a two-man golf company and what we're trying to do is is what whatever we do make money so we have a balance sheet at the end of the day and we're going to pay corporate income tax if we're successful it shouldn't matter that we're a golf company but we can't get any kind of government grant because we are a golf company <laughs> interesting um all right can we talk can we talk alberta budget sure. for a bit sure is that okay yeah so I have a copy of uh, of Trevor's uh, financial flow chart here, which is awesome because it's all bright and colory and and wavy, which is always interesting. Uh, we'll try to put a copy of this up on the site so that everybody can see it as well. Is it okay if we go through this? If if it starts getting too dull, someone just tell me. <laughs> Trevor will talk about this all night, I'm sure. But uh, so on the the left hand side, we've got the money that's coming in, the revenue, right? 
that's that's straight up that's that makes sense so we have a bunch of different uh uh lines here that become the taxes so the tax portion so we have personal income this is just your income tax right the alberta portion of your income tax that's 11 billion if i'm reading yep, this right that's right correct okay we got corporate income so this is your corporate or your small business or well big business too i guess right corporate tax so that's about 4 billion right we got property tax so uh, it, would this be the – I guess there's a portion of your property tax that goes to the province as well as the Yeah, city? that's right. So we pay kind of two property taxes, one municipal, one education. So the educational provincial property tax goes up to uh, the Alberta government, and they use that to offset some of the costs of primary and secondary education. I think they tie it to about um, 30% the cost there. Right. So you've got two billion here, two and a half billion roughly. Yeah. Uh, carbon tax is about a billion. Yeah. And 1. then 4. we have yeah. other taxes. What are the other taxes? Yeah. So the other taxes are basically every other type of tax that, that you didn't explicitly mention. So things like alcohol taxes, cigarette taxes, right? Those can bring in a good chunk okay. of money, but they're not included in income taxes, personal or otherwise. You also have taxes on insurance policies, for example. Uh, there's tourism levies, and kind of the list goes on. And new in this budget, uh, taxes on marijuana. That's, <laughs> that's now another tax. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we take all those tax, personal, corporate, property, carbon, and other taxes, and we roll all those together, we have taxes, which are $21.7 billion. Are we looking at the same one? I don't know. I, this this is 2017 to 2018. Ah, so th- is this the, the wrong year? The latest budget here is yeah, 2018, oh. 19. So well, it's well, these numbers the wrong have grown a little bit, but they're roughly <laughs> of the same magnitude that you were you were talking about there. I, I hope I didn't gonna, tweet the wrong one. No, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I just grabbed one. I, I probably did a search and grabbed it. So here, let me see if I can find your new one because. When did you tweet? It wasn't that long ago. No, a couple of days. So yeah, the the new tax level is about twenty three billion in taxes in Alberta. Okay. I love that you knew that just from my numbers. Okay, there we go. I got the right one now. Uh, so then we have the oh, so yeah, so twenty two point eight or twelve. Let's call it twenty two point nine, right? Twenty two billion nine hundred million, give or take. It's actually eight hundred ninety nine million. But uh, we got a we got a resource royalties. So that's that's three point eight billion. So yeah. this is the this is our our royalty on our oil and gas stuff, right? Exactly, and that's a big source of the problem because uh, yeah, this year we're expecting to bring in a little under four billion, but only uh, a couple years ago, so 2013, 2014, it was nine and a half billion. Wow, wow, that's a lot. Uh, we have investment income. Just two point eight billion. So this is what this is just when people money in the bank kind of thing, or no. So um, a, a lot of people don't know this, but the Heritage Fund still exists. Uh-huh. It's it's there, and uh, there's other kind of endowment funds that the province owns. So it's got about twenty billion, twenty one billion in investments, huh. stock okay. stocks and bonds, and that generates income that feeds into into the budget. So yeah, the Heritage Fund is still there. It's still kicking out income. And it's 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 a good chunk of income, yeah. So almost three billion. We've got federal transfers, so eight point two billion. So what what we talked about transfer payments and such before. So this is money that's coming into Alberta. So what would this money be? 
Yeah. So Alberta, like every province, receives money from the feds and doesn't pay any to it. Uh, here we receive two out of the three major transfer programs. So equalization is clearly the most well-known federal transfer program, and we don't receive any of that. Uh, but we do receive what's called a health transfer and a social transfer. And these are both set up to help provinces offset some of the costs of community and social services and healthcare. And every province receives the same exact amount per person. So whatever that per capita amount is, and the exact number is not off the top of my head, but it's something like 1400 bucks or so, uh, that times the number of people in the province, that's your transfer. Okay. Is it possible to um, reduce the uh, uh, per capita health transfer to the provinces uh, to balance your budget if you're a shrewd federal finance minister circa 1993 to 2003? Exactly. That's exactly what they did. Yeah, They, sh <laughs> okay. they shrunk those transfers. But in, in the process, they created a new transfer program uh, so as to make it unclear whether it was shrinking or not. So they created what was called the Canada health and social transfer um, to replace a whole bunch of previous transfers. And it worked out so that the new program paid out less than the combined amounts of the older, uh, the programs that's that it was what, replacing. That's one of the, 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 the best acts of piracy that I've ever <laughs> seen, right? Because the, like the, 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 the social fabric that, uh, that, uh, is stitched together in this country, the left and the progressives love the universal healthcare thing, but they're like hero, um, government of the nineties actually pilfered it. <laughs> they didn't even realize it. <laughs> Uh, okay, moving on. We have premiums, fees, etc. $3.8 billion. Yeah, and so we pay user fees for all sorts of things that we use from, from government. I guess uh, you, know, you pay each time you get your license plate uh, uh, redone or your driver's license updated. Uh, we pay uh, tuition fees. That's included here. So anything that's really like a user fee for some good or service that the, the government's providing to you is kind of captured there. Okay. We have government business, $2.777 million. Yeah, ATB, right? It's a bank that uh, the government owns. Uh, the, it's a, this rare thing in Canada of a state-owned bank. It generates profit, and this year I think that profit's nearly $250 million, and so that feeds into government, but also... Um, liquor so all the beer and wine okay. that we buy goes through the government uh the alberta gaming and liquor commission um, uh, so it earns revenue off of that there's also electricity sales so a lot of uh, the electricity that you buy is now through a government entity um Remember, I guess maybe two years ago now, uh, many of the coal power producers kind of handed back their what were called PPA deals mm -hmm. to the government. And so now we earn revenue on those power sales. So when power prices are high, that means that entity is going to be uh, profitable. So that's adding actually a little bit of something to this year's budget because electricity prices are a little higher than we previously thought they were going to be. Uh, and we have other revenue. Yeah, other. So there's there's lots of things there. Speeding tickets, you know, fines and penalties. That's that's other. Um, the carbon tax that large emitters pay. So 
big, you know, the oil and gas uh, facilities that emit, the power generators they emit, they pay a carbon tax too, but it's a different carbon tax and it's in a different system and it's contained here in that other category. Hmm. All right. So the last line on this looks like it's the deficit or the net of risk adjustment. Is that, that's not really part of the income though, right? That's just sort of the difference of between the spending and the revenue. Yeah. So the deficit there is that gap between what you bring in uh, and what you, what you spend. So that's borrowing. So that's dollars in, but it's not dollars in from income. It's dollars in because you borrow. Oh, I see. Okay. From a lender. So that's, yeah. I got it. Okay. So with the taxes and all those things we just talked about, that is our revenue. And we have 47 billion, $880 million in revenue, which is a good number, except that we're spending more than that. We're spending $56 billion. Uh, and then you got that all broken down too. So the vast majority of that, what we call operations, and of that, the lion's share would be health. Would at twenty of forty seven point seven billion, we've got twenty point five billion going to health. Obviously, health is health. Yeah, um, and, and that's the biggest department of any provincial government anywhere in Canada. Like health is just expensive. That so it's sense, grown yeah. now to like I guess forty percent of of the budget, give or take. And if we go back to the eighties, it was about twenty percent. Wow. So it, and it's going to increase more, right? Populations are getting older, and this healthcare system doesn't seem to be uh, getting any cheaper, especially in Alberta, especially in recent years. Yeah. You know, the 80s was a different time, though, Trevor. I mean, I remember my dad getting a prescription for um, walk it off, and I was given uh, a dose of rub some dirt on it uh, when I hurt myself playing baseball. And you turned out uh, fine. Yeah, like we're still here to, to tell the tale. Um, the thing about about health, though, and you know, this is just a knock on whoever put this chart that we're reading together. Um, does it is is a problem with this that we we don't uh, break apart what is healthcare spending too much? Like that we sort of look at at kind of the, the, the we we look at it as one. Um, you know, big bucket instead of breaking it out as like hospital operation costs, doctor salaries, part-time nurse salaries, and like trying to actually, or, or do we actively try and find places to make the cuts within here? So, so all that data is there. Uh, so we can break it down into those specific components, physician compensation, hospitals, nurses, supplies, and so on, you know, community health, uh, community mental health activities, vaccination, you know, everything. Well- and while we're here, uh, we will, and we have more questions later, but Laura actually did ask within the healthcare budget, which segment of the healthcare system takes up the largest chunk of cost? So maybe we can address that while we're right here. Sure. That's hospitals. Uh, absolutely. By far. Um, but what goes into running a hospital is also, uh, salaries of the staff involved in putting it together. Uh, sorry, not putting it together, but running it on a day-to-day yes. basis, including nurses. Um, and then physician compensation is kind of a close second there. So Alberta, for example, spends about 10% of its entire budget on physician compensation. Um, for, and I guess to give some numbers to it, we spend a little over $2,000 per person in Alberta on hospitals, just running them. Um, okay. And then physicians is number two. And then there's uh, a bunch of other things. So other types of health institutions, drugs, public health, so things like vaccination, stuff like that. But those two big items there, hospitals plus physicians is two thirds of the spending. 
Hey, Dave, why hasn't there been some kind of like uh, movement um, where somebody comes out and says, like, we could spend save a lot of money if we cut vaccines, we'd save money on vaccination (laughs) and autism treatment? Like, why hasn't that happened yet? It's a great question, Ron. Because we've all seen the movie Outbreak and (laughs) (laughs) avoid that. Dustin Hoffman coming out in his yellow jumpsuit. That's right. What, what was the one where Gwyneth Paltrow dies at the very beginning of it? That was spoiler alert, but it was kind of like a similar thing. Uh, it's just so ironic that Gwyneth Paltrow was the one who fell to like the, she could have taken real medicine right. and lived, but oh no, <laughs> she didn't. Okay. So our second, uh, second category there is education, which is just shy of 8 billion. Uh, and then I guess we can also talk about, uh, and then Trevor's salary comes yep, after that. Some, that's right. <laughs> Advanced At, uh, education. 5.6 University, billion. I'm Advanced in there education. <laughs> and so between the two of those, we're at about, about 13 billion, I guess. My math yep. is good. 13 and a half. Uh, so obviously the next biggest by far, um, with those two together. And then we have community child, uh, sorry, community social child service, which is about 5 billion. Uh, we've got the Treasury Board, which is 1.6 billion. We've got Justice, 1.466. Uh, agriculture and Forestry, that's 1 billion. So what, what, what would that be? We're paying for that. So there's, like there's a lot of programs the- for farmers, you know, insurance uh, programs, support for, you know, different kind of soil management stuff. It's- okay. And we've got other, which is, of course, other. Right? Everything else. Four, four billion for everything else. Uh, and then we have other spending, which is not operations spending. So. Yeah. And, and so this, uh, all of what you just listed were the, the operating side uh, of government. Government also invests in infrastructure and capital projects and you know helps offset some municipal capital costs, for example, with grants to them. That's all in other here. So think of that as kind of the bundle of capital spending, almost. Okay. Uh, we got 1.9 billion on interest payments. That would be to service the debt, I'm assuming. That's right. And that's, uh, I guess a really big number that has some, you know, quite concerned. And that's going to grow to maybe 3.7 billion by 2023, 24. So that is, yeah, that's interest on the borrowings that have been done to date. And if those rev resource rev royalties don't go up, then they'll literally just be you being used to pay the interest on the debt. If that's, that's true, exactly right? Because you right. just said yeah, 3.7. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, if you stay where they are, then they just go straight <laughs> the door and it's interest payments. Uh, and then the final line is climate leadership, which is $1 billion. Yeah. So that's kind of the operating side of what the government is doing with some of the carbon tax revenue. So some of it is going to pay rebates to households. So if your income is below a certain level, then you receive a direct deposit in your bank account, maybe every quarter, depending. Uh, and that's to help offset the cost uh, on your household of the carbon tax. So that adds up to quite a bit. There's also other spending in areas like compensating the uh, coal power plants for shutting down early. There's money spent on the new energy efficiency uh, programs. So all that's captured right there in that line. So we take all these numbers and we've got them all here. So obviously we are uh, increased. We've increased our debt because we have a deficit. So the deficit would be the one year amount that we're not uh, earning. 
the debt would be the accumulation of those. Correct? That's right. Yeah. The deficit is that just that one year gap. It's kind of what you're borrowing this year. And right. then the debt is the accumulation of uh, the borrowing that you've done up to that point. So, of course, we talk about getting out of debt, but before you get out of debt, you have to get out of deficit because you can't, you can't. Uh, owe less money until you make more money than you owe. Well, unless. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's not a given that people, you know, people say, "Oh, well, we need to, you know, we need to cut back. We need to to get back into a surplus." How often has Alberta been in a surplus situation? Like it depends on what you mean by surplus. And this was another question we had, of course, when when Ralph yeah. back in was it twenty thirteen. Said we're out of debt. Paid in full. That was still, July of yeah, 2004. Yeah, oh, yeah. 2004. Sorry, not. 13. It was at a stampede breakfast. I think he was having quite a quite a time. Yeah. So he was ste- this stepped out onto the steps of City Hall, held that sign up, and then I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Ed Whalen called it a ring a ding dong dandy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So yeah. was this just Ralph trying to? score some points or because apparently we were still actually making some payments on things or is that not true no 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 we we still had debt at the time and so what that sign was referring to was uh, a particular type of debt Uh, and not that it was paid off but that it was ready to be paid off because they set aside enough money in a special account uh, to gradually pay that debt down as it came due um and so we mentioned bonds earlier on. When a government borrows, it doesn't go to the bank and get a line of credit and borrow in the way that we do or and then repay it by giving the bank back some money. It, it sells this bond, and it's obliged to pay the bondholder what was promised. And for a government to repay the debt means to get that bond back from the person who originally bought it. So it may make sense just to wait until the bond matures uh, and then repay the face value of the bond at that point, rather than to try and um, entice the bond older owner to give it back by you know, bidding for it. So in, in fairness, it, it might have been cheaper just to put some money aside uh, into an account and say it's as good as paid off. Um, but... It, it, there was still debt, and there was still going to be more debt uh, under Ralph Klein around that time. Um, borrowing to pay for capital projects, for example, was excluded and not counted in even his balanced budget legislation. So even though uh, there's borrowing for some activities, there um, wasn't for others. That that one line in this graph, then Trevor, the interest payments one one point nine billion. That's that. I mean, that that's the first money out the door, isn't it? Yes, I mean, yes. You pay your debtors first, right? Yeah, yeah, or your creditors first, rather. Okay, so there's there's those that of course would say yes, we need to get back into a surplus. Sorry, the, the original question was, how many years did we actually run a surplus where we actually earned more than we paid out? I guess. Right. And then, and then I was going to get into um, <laughs> uh, uh, an answer that kind of dodges, I guess. <laughs> uh, 
But I, I find it educational. So I guess <laughs> let me first answer the question directly in that uh, th there was a, a lot of budget surpluses between, um, I guess, say, the mid-90s up until the financial crisis, those years were surplus years. Royalty revenues were extremely high, especially in the, in the later years from natural gas. Uh, we also ran surpluses, pretty sizable ones, in the 70s. You know, we have fond memories of Peter Lougheed, also boatloads of royalty revenues flowing into his coffers, and that leads there to be surpluses. If you exclude uh, royalty revenues. We've never had a surplus since 1947. Mm. So we've always relied on royalties to balance the books. Um, and, and one reason why I think we ought to consider our situation excluding royalties is think about yourself and your, I guess, investment account. If you sell some stocks in order to you know, buy something, you wouldn't say that your income went up you sold an asset and bought something with it. Right. So selling assets is very different than income. And royalties is us selling our oil and gas. It's mm. our yeah. share of the value of the resource that we as Albertans own. So it's not income. It's converting a physical asset, oil, into a financial one. And then we kind of sell it no differently than if we were depleting any other type of asset to pay the bills. So our income has always been less than our spending, at least since 1947. Interesting. Okay. So um, back to the main question, which would be if, if you or well, it doesn't have to be you personally, but if you were going to try to fix this situation, try to get us back into a surplus of some kind, without any additional revenue from resources. How do you do that? I would do it gradually through <laughs> restraint and the growth rate of spending. And I guess personally, and I think it's fine, reasonable people would disagree, I would be pretty aggressive on that front and potentially even cut entire programs. So I think some things government does don't need it doesn't need to do, and it could cut back on those. I'm thinking in particular of an easy target there. That's energy efficiency, Alberta. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be at all surprised if if uh, the government does change in 2019, that if that entire program is just shut down completely. Um, but restraining the growth rate of spending is uh, hard, of course. A great deal of spending is compensation. You have to have really difficult conversations with public sector unions. You'd have to have really difficult conversations with physicians, but I would want to pick the, the fight with physicians, especially. Just because of the size of that piece of the pie? Yeah. And how, um, I think, out of whack some of okay. the ways in which we compensate <laughs> physicians today uh, is. I mean, you, you get your income by providing a service. So there's a fee for service and different procedures have different fees attached to them. And for some of these procedures, these fees are set uh, years ago and don't make any sense anymore because right. technology has advanced to the point where, you know, this, um, you know, radiology, some diagnostic services are just so much easier 
and less time consuming now than they've ever been, and yet the fees are the same. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be this include dentists there. too, because <laughs> we could throw it, it some of those not. guys in jail. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's uh, also too, Trevor, the, the fact that that in a lot of cases physicians are pay, are compensated for seeing patients, not necessarily for their outcomes, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a some. There's a number of different models out there, and I'm not really an expert, so shouldn't weigh in on pros and cons of either, but you can imagine having physicians on salary. You just hire a physician, and they just do their job. Right. So, Trevor, you, you said something about um, you know the environmental uh, – or the uh, energy regulator, basically um, – uh, energy efficiency, uh, Alberta, sorry. Um, and, and kind of like gutting that department and how you wouldn't be surprised if, if somebody were to shut that thing down. Those are the light bulb this folks, is, I guess. Yeah. See, so this is like the, uh, this is a really, really old one. I mean, I, I've heard Milton Friedman talk about this and that guy, um, uh, haven't checked lately. Don't think he's alive, <laughs> but he, he talked about how you'd have these government bureaucracies that when their mandate was essentially, uh, fulfilled, that they would then find creative uses of their time in order to continue to, you know, draw milk from that teat, right? So it, it was, it's, it, you know, they, they, they are the, uh, you know, change the light bulbs company until they, uh, decide we need to be the turn the radios down company. So now our job is to go around and turn all the radios down. And for some reason, bureaucracies allow this to, to continue. And, and, and that, is not just the case in energy efficiency. I mean, this is kind of across the board where regular uh, reviews, serious reviews asking, does this program make sense anymore? If not, then uh, shut it down. I think that's the more reliable way to restrain spending in government is not to think you can find efficiencies everywhere in government, that there's all this waste. I mean, you know, there's waste in any large organization, for sure, uh, but you just got to do less. And I think that's a big part of what the federal government did in the 90s. They were successful at bringing down the federal deficit, not just because they lowered transfers to the provinces, but because they stopped doing a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. They did a, a real program review. And that should be an ongoing part uh, of government, not just when we have deficits, but even if we were to run a surplus, we ought to be seriously taking a look at every program. Does it make sense now? Is it being uh, not just uh, is it being run efficiently, but does it make sense? Should it exist? And just case by case. And then, you know, people will disagree, of course, and uh, different governments will have different priorities for different programs. But that would be the way that I would personally approach uh, addressing Alberta's fiscal challenge here. Nice. Um, we did have some questions uh, from some of the beleaguered talkies. Some of them we've answered already. So Eric wanted to know the difference between deficit and debt. We talked about that already. He already knew the answer, but he wanted other people to know too. <laughs> That's so good kind to know. Of uh, Brian said, if Alberta, and I think you've actually put up a chart that answered this one, but if Alberta implemented a 10% harmonized sales tax, so I'm assuming 5% on top of the GST, what would the deficit be? So a 10% harmonized sales tax, so just 5% in addition to the GST, as you put it, would be an additional $5 billion. So then the deficit this year would fall from its current level of 8.8 uh, to uh, 3.8. Right. So we'd still have a deficit, but not nearly as big of one. That would more than have it at 10% yeah. harmonized, right? And Jordan said, if, if only in conjunction with the elimination of income tax. 
And and I think there's a lot of merit to that, even if we didn't have a deficit. Some taxes are, are worse than others, and they each distort decisions in different ways. Uh, income taxes, as we discussed, corporate income taxes, uh, lower investment. Personal income taxes tend to discourage employment and work. Sales taxes do that to a much lesser extent because uh, they, they don't bind if you're not consuming something with the income, so they don't affect investment. And uh, they they do discourage work in some sense in the, that they make uh, goods and services more expensive. And but they're less distortionary. Every time economists go out to measure, you know, what's the cost of this tax or that on economic activity more broadly, sales taxes beat income taxes by a pretty wide margin. So there's a case to shift taxes um, away from income towards consumption, not necessarily raise any additional revenue, but just to shift the way in which we raise revenue in this province. And sales taxes have an added bonus in that we have Banff and Jasper. Uh, mm -hmm. About 10 cents of every dollar of sales taxes paid in Alberta would be paid by a non-Albertan. Yeah. So that would mean I, that... I, I just look at the stampede every year as like the province winning the lottery. Exactly. So, and, yeah. and with that additional money, that means income taxes would fall by more on average than you would be paying in additional sales taxes. So the, mm -hmm. there, there's almost no good reason not to do it other than the politics is. <laughs> yeah. Other than and, if you do it, you're not getting reelected. I, I, I don't quite know why. Yeah. But sales well, taxes I, are, are something else. Uh, I don't know. I, I predict Kenny will bring one in if if he's elected. I, I, not you heard it here term. first. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, he, 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 he uh, I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here, so I just don't want to put my foot in my mouth. But I mean, he is a closeted uh, pro, pro, provincial sales tax, uh, um, you know, lover, if you will. He said it a long, long time ago when he was with the Taxpayers Federation that uh, this province needs a, a PST uh, or an HST. So a consumption tax is something that's in the back of his head. And I think that he would be the one guy with the temerity to try and sell it to uh, Albertans. And besides that, this is like his victory lap. You know what I mean? Like if he's, I'm, I'm talking about him like he's already <laughs> in the big chair. But if he's elected, this is kind of going to be his victory lap. He'll do one, maybe two terms, and then he'll, he'll, he'll go off into private life and become a consultant and irritate us in the media from time to time. And what's the bet that if he does that, he'll blame the NDP for needing to bring in that sales tax? You know, it's, I've always said this, and I, it blows my mind that the narrative on, on consumption tax in Alberta is what it is. Because for as much as we say that we're a fiscally responsible or we like to be the cons fiscally conservative province, you know, like, I think that what Trevor just explained to us isn't mysterious to anybody who studied different forms of taxation. And so the, 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 that this hasn't been something that a conservative politician has been able to sell. You get to keep your money and pay your taxes when you're spending it as opposed to you get taxed before you even get a chance to spend your money. I have no idea why Albertans don't want to go for a, a political message like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I got no insight to, <laughs> to share there. I, I had a weird experience up in the Yukon, actually. So I did some... Sorry, is this related to the it's, this it's, discussion? <laughs> I'll talk about the weird experience that is related to the discussion. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, no. So um, 
a colleague of mine here and I did some work for the Yukon government who they were also in a tough uh, financial situation there. It wasn't just oil prices that fell. It was also commodity prices for lots of things. So the mining sector up there had tough times that translates into lower government revenue for the Yukon government and we're there recommending some options and part of what we were supposed to do is kind of travel around to chat with people about what they thought about the options one option of course was oh you should think about a sales tax and and we were talking to some chambers of commerce who uh as opposed to the idea as any albertan any randomly selected one and we kind of asked Hypothetically, would you favor higher income taxes if it meant we could lower the GST in the Yukon? Like the Yukon government would increase its income tax and and then give that money to Ottawa in exchange for a lower GST. And yeah, really, uh, <laughs> I, I just don't get it. I mean, as a business right. person, even right. I'm, you pay yeah, income taxes on your earnings. You're, you're paying income taxes on your, your profits. Uh, why don't we see those in the same way as we see the extra two bucks we're paying on whatever gadget we just bought? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know why. But I would be so shocked if Kenny went down that road. No. Would you? Uh, there, there's no need for him to. He can balance in his timeline with restrained spending growth, not even cuts, just restrained growth. And that he'll just do. And what he won't do is go back to the flat tax, I bet. Ah, see, that would shock me if he doesn't do that. Why do you say that? That's interesting. I think that I, I almost perceive that as like a, a really easy victory. I mean, just the same way that when Rachel Notley said we go to a progressive income tax, it was something that she could just snap her fingers and do, and lo, she did. So I, I don't see why you think that would be something Kenny won't do. Well, Prentice was going to have a progressive income tax as well. So they mm-hmm. were both going to go in that direction. And we saw when the policy document for the UCP uh, – was I guess leaked. I don't think they wanted it to be public, but they haven't voted on it yet. Came out going back to the flat tax was one of the options. And that's what everyone focused on. That's what a lot of the, the columnists focused on. The headlines were all about that. It plays into the message of going back to the 1990s. Right. Um, I think inequality concerns are a little bit more salient now than they were then. Um, I mean, personally, it, I, doesn't really bother me all that much and i wouldn't have an issue of going back to a flat tax but other than it would lower revenue and would make the challenge of balancing the books a little bit more difficult Mm -hmm. and i could see if he was going to lower income taxes that he would also want to lower it for most albertans Mm -hmm. and that would mean lowering that first bracket rate maybe from 10 to 9 or just lower everything by one point across the board if he was going to do that going back to the flat tax uh benefits such a small fraction of the population that it's not going to be something that tops your list as a vote getter, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, and who, who would I be to disagree with that anyway? But, uh, but I do think that it's, it's one of those things that plays. I think that it does sort of harken back to the, the good old days of Ralph. And I think that, you know, we're so far away from what the nineties were like in Alberta that it's, it's, it's lore 
And so if you can just basically say, yeah, it'll be just like when Ralph was in charge, I think that that's, that sells for enough people. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't around for, I kind of wonder how many Albertans were actually around for, for Ralph Klein. Like how many people actually have memories of that? The population has grown so much since then. And I was yeah, here two, two thirds of this podcast right now, <laughs> but no, you're right. I love yeah, it when, absolutely. when especially the, the younger folks on the Reddit tell me about how terrible everything was when Ralph was in charge. The infrastructure was crumbling guys, crumbling, but we all had pockets full of money. So we didn't care. It's very funny to. To, to be yeah. told by people half my age what things were like when I was actually there. <laughs> but yeah, it, it got insane though, right? I mean, like the whole mailing out checks so people can go buy stereos and, and saying that it was like, you know, responsible government. It was just sort of like, oh man. Yeah. 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 Put Stop it in the Heritage it. Fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we had a few more questions. We don't want to get too far off track here. So you answered, uh, Keith asked a question about, uh, what does it mean to be out of debt? You answered that for us already. So you had a follow up question. Uh, he says, is debt automatically bad for a province? Is there good debt and bad debt? So no, debt is not automatically bad. Um, it, it, it serves a lot of useful purposes. Debt is a tool and it, has two big functions. Uh, first, it's kind of a shock absorber. Lots of things will happen that are unanticipated, not just from one year to the next, but one month to the next. And so debt allows you to kind of bridge that gap between good times and bad. I, I guess the concern there is that in the good times, uh, spending tends to ramp up rather than the debt that was taken out in the bad times being repaid. So that's that's kind of an asymmetry there that uh, politics is, I'm not sure, capable of getting over. Because when there is a surplus, people are like, oh, uh, I have something that I can spend or lower taxes with, <laughs> rather than repay the debt that you brought out in the bad times. But you could imagine uh, through a business cycle, you take out debt during the recession, you pay it off during the boom, but you balance over the whole cycle. Uh, a second thing that debt can do is shift costs into the future. And a lot of times you hear people say, oh, we're just saddling our children with this debt. And yeah, that's fine if the debt was used to pay for things that will also benefit them. So infrastructure, for example. So debt to fund capital projects shifts the costs of the project into the future. And the benefits, because it's this long-lived project, will also exist in the future. So using debt to fund infrastructure uh, and using it to uh, smooth out business cycles. These are kind of two, I think, very useful ways in which we can use debt. Uh, economists actually call this the golden rule of government borrowing, where you borrow in a recession, you pay it off in the boom, and you can borrow for, for capital projects so long as those benefits are shifted out into the future. Um, of course, that's tricky to implement as well because um, – you know, what's an infrastructure project? What has benefits in the future? Is is a teacher an infrastructure project? <laughs> they are they are building human capital. They are rearranging molecules in a child's brain that will last long into the future and create benefits. Then that does sounds that, disgusting that, when you talk yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I but, guess this all this is all predicated on the fact that there will be a boom, right? There you go. And that's another implementation problem with a business cycle. Right? Yeah, recessions happen, booms happen, and 
that's going to be true, but sometimes recessions are longer than other times. Booms last longer than other times. Or they're uh, not as big as they were. So really implementing such a thing is, is tricky. I think what it comes down is um, having something that we can anchor our expectations to. Or what do we expect of government finances? And economists talk about that debt to GDP ratio because that's really how we think. That's our anchor in uh, a lot of analysis. That's kind of what you want to look to to think about whether your debt is sustainable or not. If that debt to GDP ratio is growing and growing, that's not sustainable. You want that debt to GDP ratio to either be constant or falling. And that's kind of what we should look to, uh, at least in terms of debt sustainability and uh, whether or not we're borrowing too much or too little. But yeah, not all debt is bad. And I would go back to uh, Klein and say that he completely agrees with me and excluded from his balanced budget requirement, capital borrowing. That didn't count. So he, he Even after he held up that paid in full sign, issued new capital project bonds. Um, the province also carries debt for municipalities. It's much cheaper for the province to borrow to help pay for, you know, a new rec center than it is for the city. So there's an entity that exists uh, that allows municipalities to borrow through the province. And so this is an interesting and useful way to use provincial debt. Um, yeah. Cool. I did uh, hold some of those Alberta capital bonds. I feel like I'm a brick in an arena somewhere. Hey, wow. <laughs> uh, so Scott asked, uh, this is right on topic of what you're just saying. Uh, so Scott says, the current budget suggests that Alberta is fine because its debt to GDP ratio is still solid. Is that true or is it only a secondary indicator since GDP only matters when it translates into government revenue? How does a non-oil per person governmental income in Alberta compare to other jurisdictions? In short, are we undertaxed for the services we receive? Scott's a smart cookie, by the way. That is a really interesting point, a really good point. I mean, the reason why we look at GDP as, a, as relevant uh, for the debt-to-GDP ratio is because, for the most part, government revenue is related to GDP, because GDP is income, right? Roughly, to a first approximation here. The total economic activity in a region is the total income that's there, and there's taxes on that. So government revenue rises when GDP rises and falls when GDP falls. But as he, as he notes, in Alberta, it's a little different in that a good chunk of our revenue comes from resource royalties. We mentioned our dependence on that is pretty substantial, and that moves up and down in a way that depends on oil prices. But Alberta's GDP also moves up and down in a way that depends on oil prices. So when Alberta GDP goes up, it's probably because things are doing well in oil and gas. And when GDP is going down, the reverse is true. So I'd still say that Alberta government revenue is very strongly related to GDP in Alberta, though it's related to it for different reasons than in in other areas. But I guess to his direct question there is, is the budget okay? I mean, yeah. It is okay. It's fine. Whether the level of debt um, is worth the programs that the funds are being spent on, that's a separate question. There, there's absolutely no risk of Alberta being in some uh, debt crisis situation. Uh, so it's fine in that sense. But that doesn't mean that 
reasonable people can't disagree over whether uh, the borrowing is inappropriate. But what that really means is that the spending is inappropriate. And for those people, they would need to identify which programs they would like to cut and then defend those choices. Too often, I think politicians point to the debt and yell about it. They don't actually say what it would take to eliminate it. And saying it out loud is tough because then you create people who can clearly mm -hmm. identify as the loser in that situation. It's easy for me to say uh, lower physician compensation and eliminate energy efficiency helper. It's another thing for a politician who's hoping to get votes to say that. Um, but if, if we think or if one thinks that all the spending that government does is appropriate and defensible, then yes, we're undertaxed. I'm just Googling here, Western governments that have pitted themselves against doctors and won public support. Wow. Like zero search results. That's wild. Uh, the last comment we had was from Jordan. It was, a, was not a question. He just said, that's an excellent graph chart, visual aid slash whatever. Very handy. So well done. Thank you. Is that is that your favorite? This, this is like the economist nerd question. What's your favorite kind of chart to use, Trevor? <laughs> so this is called a Sankey diagram. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is super it cool. Google Analytics all the time, yes. <laughs> and then there's another type you use a lot that's like this kind of idea, but it's like sort of round, more round with like arrows coming in and out of it. Is that – am I making that up? No, no, that's that's right. It's kind of a, a circle where there's flows connecting different parts of the circle. Um, now I am really drawing a blank at what that is actually called. Just make it up. No one else is going to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's called a cylindroid. <laughs> no. <laughs> Perfect. No. All right. All right. Hey, Trevor, listen, uh, we could probably talk about the Alberta budget and uh, provincial economic matters. Uh, even deeper into the evening than we already have. But um, I have to, and I, I hate to be the one who has to bail out on this podcast early, you guys, but I, I absolutely must go. I've got a meeting of the Forestry and Agriculture uh, Roundtable Society, and we like to discuss uh, forestry and ag uh, issues <laughs> on a different podcast. So I got a jet. Understandable. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much, man. I always feel like we learn so much from you every time that you're here. So yeah, thank you for uh, for doing that. And I'm sure the the people listening to the podcast are are getting a ton out of it as well. It's nice to be able to take these sort of buzzwords and you know complicated issues and kind of break them down so that people can understand them. Yeah, yeah but thanks. see, now I feel like I have to go back over everything I've thought since the last time Trevor and I spoke and see if I'm wrong about everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Anyway, yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, big fan of the podcast, too, by the way. I like Thank the you, uh, the uh, recommendations for what you're watching. So I did check out uh, Chris Rock's comedy special oh, yeah, there, yeah. Tambourine. Right. Yeah, well worth it. Pretty good. Some good life advice there. Uh-huh. Have you got a, have you got something you want to recommend then as we kind of wrap this uh, podcast up, put a nice twist on it? Do you have any anything uh, you're watching? Well, uh, my wife and I just finished watching Star Trek Discovery, uh, you know, the new Star Trek series. I'm a big mm -hmm. science fiction nerd, uh, and I thought they did a great job. It's a little darker of a Star Trek than we tend to get. It's not on... Uh, you know, a regular broadcast network. It's on CBS All Access, so they can get away with a little more than 
they could if they were censored, I guess. Um, if you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then another one that I'm not sure I want to recommend because I'm not entirely <laughs> clear I'm a fan of it yet, but I'm a little bit hooked. That's Altered Carbon, this oh, yeah. new Netflix show. Uh, just the idea of it, I find really intriguing where these people live forever. They can move from one body to the other. What would society look like in that situation? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's a really interesting show. Nice. Yeah. I'm about to put that one in the, give that one a tumble myself. Hey, do you feel by the way, uh, on the Star Trek front, Trevor, that the Federation allocates enough, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure spending on, on Starfleet? <laughs> well, I think with replicators, they really have it easy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I watched, uh, yesterday. I don't know if either you guys are, uh, workaholics fans, but, uh, the, the three guys, uh, from workaholics did a, uh, a Netflix movie and it was essentially, uh, like a take on Die Hard where the three of them play waiters in a building that gets taken over by terrorists. So it's like, it's like, let's call it a millennial Die Hard. Wow. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty rude. It's pretty vulgar, but it might be worth a watch if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, we are going to uh, wrap this one up, Trevor. Again, uh, our, our profound thanks for, for explaining some stuff to us, educating us on some stuff, and, and for just being a generally good and giving guy. It's, uh, a lot of people um, really value what you do and putting your, your thoughts and your expertise out there for all to consume. So uh, we thank you heartily. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You've been listening to the National Talking League. Show notes from this episode can be found at nationaltalkingleague.com. Support for this podcast comes from you. Please share it on social media. Give a five-star review in your favorite podcast store. And connect with us on Facebook. On behalf of Roger Kincaid and Dave Ware, thank you.